Welcome to the Hammond High podcast. I'm Andre Longley and my guest this week is journalist and documentary maker Andrew Gold. Andrew was a Highgate resident until a few years ago when he upped sticks to Buenos Aires in Argentina and began looking into the work of Padre Manuel Acuna, an investigation which led to the BBC documentary Exorcism, the Battle for Young Minds. Uh, so, Andrew Gold, thanks so much for joining us on the Ham Night podcast this week. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. No, no problem. Um, for the listeners, Andrew and I have probably not seen each other for about eight years because we um, studied journalism together in, in Lambeth. And uh, whereas Andrew went off on the path of going to the sun and then going into exorcisms, I went to Surrey and then ended up on the Hammond High. So quite different journalism paths. Um, so, Andrew, was it uh, the, the documentary is your, um, your, your big thing on the BBC about exorcisms? Well, when was that um, filmed? So we actually filmed it back in 2017, I think. Um, but the BBC hadn't committed to it. They had just said like, oh, we like the idea, but we're not going to give you any money to make it or anything. You know, if you make it, get back to us whenever you want. So we made it, yeah, back in 2017 in Buenos Aires. A friend of mine called David came out. Um, but I was at university with him and he's a director and he's brilliant. And he came out to Argentina. We'd met this guy who's a, he's an exorcist and he's on TV all the time over there. People take him a little bit seriously. Uh, and he expected us to also take him very seriously rather than what we did, which was try to expose how he was uh, taking advantage of the local community. But yeah, we went and made that. Um, it took about a year, a year and a half of, of sort of pushing everybody at the BBC to actually watch it because um, it's not it's not the way it's typically done typically they'd send you know send you out there so yeah we had to make it edit it do all of that stuff and then yeah the, the hardest work 90 percent of it was just pushing everyone there to watch it and it took about a year and a half eventually someone did and they were like oh yeah this is good and they they took it which was nice and to paint a picture that the padre at the center of this is a huge well-known figure a big personality and um, what we're talking about is not what you just might call evangelical Christian. He's doing exorcisms. He's pressing on people's heads. He's shouting at them. He's forcing the de- uh, demons or Satan, I guess it is, out. Yeah. Did you, when you, how did it feel when you were in the room when this was happening? Um, it was actually a, a really strange thing because I, I thought this was going to be a bit of a lark. Um, and I'd grown up watching a lot of Louis Theroux. That's part of why I wanted to sort of get into presenting documentaries and making them. And I thought he was going to be maybe a funny character and this was all going to be a bit of fun. So I got to actually take part in the exorcism, the first one that we did. So I'm holding the bells and like, rubbing, you know, um, dangling the bells that are supposed to, you know, uh, stave off the devil. Um, it, it, it was funny for about a minute and then it was the realization of like okay i don't believe in the paranormal or anything like that but there are there's a there's a there's a woman sort of splayed out before me and in just you know basically having a mental breakdown as far as i was concerned right in front of my eyes and that is as scary as anything paranormal so there was a quick realization not only of like how scary this is going to be and not really that funny although there were opportunities for comedy in the documentary but not not during the exorcisms um but 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 also how inappropriate it was that I was sort of taking part as if this was a funny, silly thing. My my role in it suddenly became a little bit, uh, I suppose, controversial. And we decided then that in the future exorcisms, we did another one later, um, I wasn't going to take part. I would just be a sort of worried observer. 
Yeah, it's an interesting question, isn't it? Because you did find yourself right in the middle of it. And as far as I could see, they kind of handed you the bells on the spur of the moment. So you were also in a position where you were being led down a road by the person in control. Yeah, but we had sort of pushed that before off camera as well. Sort of, is it okay if I take part a little bit? Just because it was what I'd always seen, whether it be Theroux or Michael Moore or Stacey Dooley, whoever it is, they're always sort of taking part. And I, you know, that's the most fun part as a presenter. And even now to be able to look back, you know, this was now three years ago, to be able to look back and say, I took part in an exorcism that's what I live for. That's, you know, some people get a kick out of whatever, you know, other passions they might have. And this is, for me, it was, yeah, I've taken part in an exorcism. How, how fun and fantastic. But of course, yeah, I mean, these are, these are, it was, it was always women in, while we were there and they were young women generally and they were suffering with things like schizophrenia, um, intrusive thoughts, which I would, I'm not a doctor, of course, but I would associate with uh, severe obsessive compulsive disorder or schizophrenia and that kind of thing. Uh, which, which are all things that obviously happen to have very similar uh, symptoms to a, a, a somebody who has a demon inside them would imagine they would have. So, you know, that's that's where the complication lies. Are you still in touch at all with either of the, the two women um, who are central to the documentary? How are they doing? Yeah, I haven't for the last sort of six months or so, but I, I have checked in a little bit because I've got... Uh, so, so Natalia was the first one we, we did and... Yeah, she. I, well, we had to get back in touch with them a year later. Well, when when it was going out with the BBC, because the BBC are very very thorough with everything about like the legal side and also the ethical side. Because if a year later one of these women who were in very vulnerable positions decided that you know if this film comes out they're going to do some harm to themselves, this is going to affect them badly. That's not something the the BBC would want. To, to happen of not 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 something any of us would want to happen so i had to go back and speak to them this was a big deal for me and it was a very difficult position to be in because i was thinking please just tell me it's fine because if you if you don't that's two years of work gone and my big opportunity gone and we can't do anything with the film i mean obviously you get people to sign release forms beforehand so the exorcist himself wanted to pull it he didn't want this to go out but he's not somebody that we considered a mental health risk so that that doesn't matter um, he signed stuff, you know. Whereas, yeah, I went back to see them, and uh, so Natalia was now going to see yeah, other exorcists. She doesn't trust this exorcist anymore. And Candela, who's the younger girl, she was seventeen at the time of filming, and she had been cutting her wrists. She also now doesn't like the padre. She she realised he's wrong. And in both both instances, I thought like, oh, good, they finally seen the light. They're going to get you know medical help. But actually, they were like so now I've gone to see another exorcist and it's like, oh no, you shouldn't be doing that. But yeah, Candela, the, the young woman, she's, she's fallen in love and has a child. That's just, that's just what I know from Instagram. I've got her on Instagram. So I think she's doing better by, you know, by all, from, from the images alone, she seems to be. Well, that's, that sounds good as far as it goes. I guess it's the, it's the neoliberal dream, isn't it? They shop around for their favourite exorcists. They don't have to stick to whichever exorcists being supplied in their own village. Yeah, capitalistic exorcism. <laughs> the, um, the Padre himself, I mean, people would have to, to see it to, to understand what we're talking about. But he's very much controlling the room. He's obviously controlling the situation. Um, he's, there's obviously some kind of... Um, enforcing his personality on the subject of the of the exorcism but also on everybody in the room it, it really 
it was really familiar to me from several years now of dealing with politicians or um, senior councillors, for example, people who are used, or businessmen, people who are used to being in a yeah. room and their word is everything. And it, it just seemed very, very, very familiar. Um, and so when you kind of confronted him and he decided to take an aggressive approach, it was, uh, I mean, it looked very intimidating. Mm. Yeah, it's. I know what you mean. It's that magnetism that he has, but he also has that. It's a little bit. Uh, I was, as you were explaining the politicians you've spoken to, I don't know why, but my mind went straight to Jose Mourinho. I was just imagining what it would be like, you know, if you're a journalist talking to him. And so, full disclosure, we're both Spurs fans here, so yeah. we can talk about this with a, a certain empathy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I love the guy now, but uh, you wouldn't want to be on the wrong side of him. And that's what happened with us with The Exorcist, who had that same kind of magnetism. That's why he's so popular. I mean, he was a really, his his methods were populist as well. He he was out in an impoverished part of the suburbs of Buenos Aires, which which is what was so strange about it for me as well, because I'd been living for six years and, um, you know, since leaving Highgate, I went to, to South America. And so I'd been living for six years in, in Buenos Aires. And um, it's very modern. It's very much like, I, I would equate it to like an Italian city or something, you know, maybe Spanish city. Um, and then as soon as you go just outside, you've got the parts which are maybe the, the slums, they call them the bichas uh, or villas would be the English uh, pronunciation, how it's spelt and everything. And um, yeah, very impoverished, no education. So these people wouldn't have anybody to talk to um, about mental health issues. They wouldn't know what that is. So it's just, you know, shudders and shakes and intrusive thoughts must be a demon. And this guy was just so charming and so he he would do things like play the music from the exorcist film tubular bells he played that during his mass it's remarkable <clears throat> that he would choose that which if you'd suggested it for a, uh, for a for a mock documentary for example you'd be thinking <laughs> of going too far god that would be a good idea actually like a mock series about the exorcist you've just given a good idea um yeah it's 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 not yeah you in fact i think you'd say if it was a mock if it was like the office but you know exorcism you'd say that's touched too far you'd say no no that's too unrealistic but he was doing that and <clears throat> it's easy for us to judge but again these are people who don't have the education that we do and also it's part of the whole shtick you know it's a part of the whole thing because I spoke recently uh, to a hypnotist, a hypnotherapist on my podcast, and he was explaining how he watched the Exorcist film, and it was exactly what he does uh, if, with hypnotism. And for hypnotism to work, the people who go to the mass need to know what's expected of them. Um, so that's why the Exorcist music, there are pictures and posters all around the church of films like The Exorcist with his face, the priest's face superimposed onto the, the characters' faces, and the actors' faces. So it's very much part of showing these people how they're supposed to react, what what research they need to do, what films and YouTube videos they need to look up. But yeah, the, the, the moment you were talking about was uh, near the end of the film, he thought that I'd been asking too much about his relationship with a young woman that he had taken out of a psychiatric ward who had schizophrenia and was now had done an exorcism on her and she was now part like by his side and sort of working with him and the two of them were often alone together she wasn't underage uh she was sort of 19 or 20 but it's not a good look for a uh 55 year old priest uh who's taken women out of psychiatric wards so i didn't actually make that um implication you know i didn't i didn't well, I, did, I sort of half did in some questions you know but he had heard that I had asked why they they kiss each other on the mouth, which was something I had never, never asked or seen 
but the, the, he he took me into a room. He wouldn't let my director in with me. And it was scary. It was in, in the film. That's two minutes of him screaming at me with a few of his cronies around him. Uh, we got we got the audio. He didn't know the audio was still recording. I guess, uh, but we never said we were stopping it. But it was it was on my my t shirt, uh, the microphone. But we couldn't get the video there. But I mean, yeah, in real life, it was a good hour. And I'm not used to that kind of confrontation. And the, the thing was, David and I, uh, the director David Hayes and I, we were out in the middle of nowhere. It was like past midnight and quite a dangerous area to be in nobody knew where we were we weren't doing this on behalf of the bbc or anything like that we were just like you know on our own so it was really scary and what i noticed in that moment was like rather than you know being prepared to flee at any moment my legs turned to jelly like instantly and i was just found myself in this situation of like oh no no but i didn't say that and he's going yes you did and call me padre and all this stuff and i was like yes padre yes padre really really probably one of the scariest moments of my my life actually in that in that little room and i certainly empathize there's certainly situations i've been in where you've been in a confrontation with somebody who's in real authority and a kind of instinct kicks in and obviously they're an authority because they've got that skill to impose their will um and so, so you've got to well you know as you do in the film you you try and find a way to diplomatically edging out and if that involves saying yes padre yes padre yes padre you 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 do it um which is scary and it's a scary insight and i think he says it um that's caught on on your audio that um it's kind of an insight into the well it's controversy but it's an insight into how he is in those behind closed doors in that place yeah yeah it, man it was so scary and th- like i say we had a whole hour so there were lots of bits in there that i said that didn't make the final cut um and maybe i come across a lot of people say to me now like wow you were actually quite brave in that you know despite uh giving in and and being complacent and uh, uh submissive um the the longer version had a lot more of me saying like like come on like and i said to him like you're scaring me now he's like oh i'm scaring you am i and all this stuff and i was like yeah you really really are he had a bloke next to him who has this big staff he's a guy that he tried to do an exorcism kind of thing on me uh himself big guy he was big heavy set fella and he's got this big staff like jafar in aladdin has uh and i just thought this guy because at the end of the end of the day if you're not a paranormal believer these are just a bunch of blokes out in the suburbs of of a, a, a relatively dangerous city so yeah scared scared out of my mind it was only on the way home oh man and another thing that happened by the way i just remembered so david and i and we had our our um colleague demian who's a demian bio who's a young um he was a very at the time young journalist he's now a slightly older journalist um he came along and helped with everything and yeah we walked out and it was very hard to get out of the building once they let us go we were just relieved but it was hard because there was a mass going on and it was sort of getting becoming quite fervent in there and really you know heating up and people were spilling out tens of thousands of them into the street so just getting out of the church itself was was a real ordeal it was really hard and scary and trying to get in and out of people it sounds like a nightmare with covid now but it was it was pre-covid obviously and we got out and then david said oh you know what i forgot to film that part we need we need you leaving the building and at that point I, you know i wasn't even thinking about filming which is why he's obviously got his filming hat on or they're not enough to film that bit he said it didn't come out or whatever so we had to scared out of our minds squeeze back into the building for 10 minutes going past people hoping that the priest wouldn't see us 
I could hear him by that point on stage shouting stuff about the devil was in the building and all this stuff was obviously a reference to me. Uh, squeezed back in and then walked out again to film it. And then then we were in the situation of, okay, now we're outside in this like apocalyptic vision of like the streets with like police cars at one end and people in the street just falling over whenever the exorcist sprayed water at them and just thinking, how are we going to get home? We ended up wandering around with all our equipment for like ages before we got a taxi. And it was only then, on the taxi on the way home, we started talking and it was like, was your mic on in the room the whole time? You know, and we started to realize, oh, we've got all of that. And at first we were gutted because we thought we weren't going to confront him for another few weeks. The documentary, we were supposed to do another few weeks of filming, get there and then eventually confront him. And it was like, well, we've lost access now. That's it. Um, but we started thinking, but maybe that's even better. We weren't sure. And it obviously turned out to be far better than anything. That's, that's the fun with documentaries. I mean, you, you can plan as much as you want and either it goes not as well as you want or it goes much better. I mean, we couldn't have expected he would give himself away in, in that manner. He really lost the plot. And it was like, wow, we we might really have something. So we were then excited, still shaking from the nerves, but excited to look through all the stuff in the next few days. I think the the adrenaline of being in the situation really comes across in the in the documentary. It's great. Does he believe it, the Padre? It's really hard to know, and like I can't say. I mean, uh, another issue was like, I mean, from a, from a legal point of view, if I were to say that that he is a fraud. I suppose that's defamation, isn't it? I mean, we were in that same journalism class. I don't know, <laughs> but uh, that's part of uh, that was part of like the lawyers and stuff at the BBC. They were they were really pushing us to. We had to change so much stuff. Anything that implied that too much. I think with these things, it's always really hard to know because my my um, instinct is that he knows and he's tricking people. But that's also just because I find it so hard to get my mind into a place of that kind of belief. Um, my director David was he's a lot more he, he grew up in a bit of a religious family whereas mine wasn't really at all so he was not open to the idea of exorcism or anything like that but a little bit more just like understanding of belief and that's what we're supposed to do as, as journalists is try and understand somebody else's point of view so I don't I don't want to say that he he is being a fraud I wonder if it's a little bit of everything there's a bit of cognitive bias in there there's a little bit of he sort of half believes in his powers, but if he really, really were to self-analyze, he'd sort of know there's deep down they don't work. He needs to believe in himself, maybe. So, yeah, a bit of both, maybe. I think that's the sort of impression I got. I think what came across to me was that he probably does believe most of it because that's part of his belief about himself is yeah. and his self-belief and a certain amount of arrogance and um and all of that and that relies on actually him not just being a showman but also being a whatever of god do you have any faith at all no not not any at all uh but but i am fascinated by it you know so i, I recently read this great book by will store about uh called heretics and he's great he's like a sort of john Watson kind of writer you know he'll go and investigate stuff he looked into belief and stuff um and there was this great little clip from it where he taught and I, I don't know the science and i can't remember it properly but the point was they, they they found ways of sort of doing something scary to patients the patients would get scared and they made the patient then forget the reason like what they had done before there was like some way they did that the the, the point being that then the patient was left scared and they didn't know why because they'd been made to forget what had just happened and every single time when they asked the patient why are you scared the patient created a whole story in their minds about why they were scared so each time they said because you're looking at me funny because you remind me of somebody who scared me once 
because I was thinking of a horror film. And none of them could remember that they had just been shown something scary. So that amazed me. And that's what I want to do with my documentaries is look into not just in a paranormal level, but I also went and did a film about abortion, for example, that I'm trying to sell at the moment. My my politics, I suppose, is, is as much aligned with pro-choice as it can be. I mean, pro-life makes very little sense to me. So that was a really interesting challenge for me to go and like not see pro-lifers as evil, but to try and understand them. And I went and sort of lived with this woman who's known out there as the crazy baby lady. She's one of those people who goes and screams at people, you know, having abortions and stuff like that. It makes them in, in Buenos Aires as well, because they had the vote just, just after we got the exorcism film done. They had the vote. So we're, try- we're still trying to sell that film at the moment. It's like with the exorcism film, you end up having to try and get everyone to watch it for a couple of years, and then they do. Uh, but I basically almost lived with this woman, the crazy baby lady. She's got six kids. She's very Catholic. And, she, you know, she hates me now, just like the exorcist does. But at the end, she absolutely hates me. But I really enjoyed her company. She was so nice to me. She took me in, um, took me on the school run, all those kinds of things. Very 90s through, if you know what, you know, it's that kind of style. And I just, I really just thought, okay, she's got a totally different belief to me, but not because she wants to take away women's rights, not because she hates people, you know, not because she's a hateful person. She just has those beliefs. And I don't, I don't think it's a belief of uh, that killing a, a baby that's one day old if you've had sex the day before. I don't really think she believes that. It's just more of like a whole conservative values thing that she has. So I'm always fascinated by just, okay, why all the time? Why do people believe things? And isn't that interesting? Why do I believe stuff? So yeah, but I have, in terms of religious belief, I have none, but I understand why people do. Do you? Do you? Are you into that? Uh, no, I'm probably similar. I'm um, very atheist and always have been. Yeah. Um, but again, it is fascinating. And I think I, I suppose I have a, a slight respect for people with strong beliefs who act on them. So, for example, if you're an animal rights um, or um, a vegan campaigner and you go and do um, protests at Bernard Matthews plants or whatever, um, then, of course, if your belief is that animals should have exactly the same rights as humans, it's entirely rational to do that. And people who are very pro-life who will protest outside clinics i think it's abhorrent i think they're wrong i think it's awful for the for the women who are going in but it's also consistent if you <laughs> believe that um that uh, the unborn child should have you know should yeah. have those rights to live it's well, the, well, the problem is no- and actively try and stop that happening this is the thing. I mean, we're all hypocrites to such an extent. It's, it's crazy how hypocritical all of us are because we don't even know why we believe things. So we're def- nobody else is going to believe us if we don't even know our own belief system properly. So, you know, uh, what I was told is a lot of the people who were very anti-abortion, anti-legal, anti the legalization of abortion, of course, most people are anti the just abortion, of course. I mean, but they want it to be legal anyway. It's a very difficult decision for, for most people. Um, but, but those people often do get abortions in Argentina. It's not legal, um, but the wealthy families find ways, if, if you know what I mean. They always they will be able to find a doctor and they have the money to do that. So what they're doing is they're taking away a right from poorer people and they will do it themselves and they will fight against it. And that's that's often the case. That reminds me of, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family, so I'm, a little, I'm tuned into sort of Israel and stuff like that. And in Israel, the, as, and someone's probably going to tell me I'm wrong about this, but my understanding is that the Hasidic... Uh, community in 
in um, Israel, they often vote for very right-wing uh, governments, which makes Israel a little bit more right-wing. And part of that is that they they vote that they don't ever have to take part in military service, but they vote to keep the military service going. So it's the cons- the inconsistencies of that. Like, I don't want abortion to be legal, but I will do it myself because I've got the money and all this stuff. I don't want to fight in a war, but I'll make sure everyone else does. We are inconsistent, and, and they probably won't see those things in themselves, and I won't see my own inconsistencies in my own line of thinking. But it's all fascinating, isn't it, the belief and stuff? It really is. A few years ago, I tried to go down the route of creating for myself a consistent ethical vegetarianism. Mm. So I'm vegetarian, but mm. having discussed it extensively with a <clears throat> marine biologist friend, I also eat bivalves, so mussels or oysters or ah. scallops, because essentially they're filters. They're not active beings. They can't be described as having a central nerve system in the same way as an active animal. They're filters, things go through them and it, it gives them life, which is that, yeah, an attempt to be consistent okay i'll treat that the same way as plants because i don't think they could be considered living breathing animals in the same way i am yes i haven't managed to become vegan so i'll still um have milk with my cereal with my weetabix or um and i'll still eat eggs which obviously is hugely problematic if i'm trying to take a moral stance on um on on my food i think all we can do is is just do our best if everybody just tries to be nice and to give everybody else some you know the, the, it's giving people the benefit of the doubt uh and i get i get what you do because i do exactly the same thing and for years i wasn't a vegetarian but i, I was like oh but I'll, I'll only eat chicken <laughs> you know just mad stuff and now it's like a no animals um i see no uh, uh moral issue with eating oysters and things i, I just think they look and seem disgusting <laughs> so <laughs> i'm not going near those but um, I mean, look, we've got it right now with, with the whole Trump thing, right? And, and I'm, look, this is the ham and high, right? It's most people in that area. I'm part of that area. It's quite a liberal area, right? Most people would not be able to understand, including myself, why people would want Trump in charge. But I think that's that's problematic in itself. I mean, if we talk about belief, the amount of tweets I've seen just going, "Oh, America's a bunch of racists." It, look, there are going to be some people in America who will vote for Trump, whatever. There are some people who will not vote for Trump, whatever. And then there's a whole middle ground, of course, you know, the swing vote. I'm, I'm not saying anything new in that. The point is this, the swing vote. If you're a swing voter and somebody's saying to you, you're an idiot, you're a racist, you're stupid, I think that is just going to push you further away. I think what we need to be doing, and maybe people are like, we've done this and I'm tired of it, and I get that thought as well, but is reaching out to those people and saying, hey, look, this is a reason it might be good to vote for Biden and not Trump. And instead of going, you're a, you know, another thing I've been looking into recently is, is pedophilia, right? And I, I'm going to link this because it's, it's obviously a, quite a, a, a crazy topic. But I'm in Germany, in Berlin, and they happen to have a very controversial pedophile clinic because they don't report pedophiles to authorities, right? Whereas in the UK, uh, doctors are bound to do that. Therapists are bound to do that. Uh, in America, they would be arrested, doctors, if they didn't. They'd be put in prison if they didn't report somebody to authorities. So it's a big controversial thing. And in Berlin, they say, we have pedophiles. Uh, so we don't, we don't report it because otherwise they won't come in. And that's the only way we can stop children from being abused. If you can just save one kid from being abused that way because you've given the guy therapy. Anyway... All the doctors I've spoken to disagree about the ways to treat them, whether it's the British or the German or whoever. Uh, the one thing they all agree on is the main risk factor. Again, like like with Trump, you know, you're going to get some people who will, will offend whatever. Most paedophiles will never offend. Then you've got 
the swing state you know you've got the middle ground and the number one risk factor is stigmatization if you tell those people they are monsters they will act as such if you tell them that they are a a, a moral representative of society who has responsibilities and all of those things they will act that way they will feel like no i i'm in charge you know i'm in charge of my actions i'm a good valuable member of society so it's really complicated but it does seem like the more you blame people the more they move away the more they move to the darker sides that's a really um well that's a really interesting analogy i suggest it's probably best in long form on a podcast rather than in a tweet <laughs> yeah that tweet would uh, probably get me fired or something it would cause problems with your next bbc contract i should think As we're speaking right now, um, the uh, the count is still going on. It's Thursday. Mm. Uh, we may get a result in the next day, and then we may be in court for the next three years. So the discussion about Trump and Biden is going to go on a while. Um, it's yeah, it, yeah, it's. <laughs> he's a sociopath. I think he's. A, I think he's a sociopath. Like, and I mean that. I, I interviewed a sociopath recently, a, a female Mormon sociopath. And she, she said as well, she recognizes a lot of similar traits to herself in Trump. And uh, again, everyone says, don't don't analyze from afar. But it's like, well, that's just my opinion. I'm not a doctor. <laughs> but again, the second time I've said that today. But, you know, um, I think he's a sociopath. I think he's, you know, the stuff he does, you know, Mexicans on the border, the stuff he, LGBT stuff, uh, anti-Muslim stuff, it just goes on. But again, I, I, just, I just worry about the way that, you know, people on the, the left or the center are getting that message out because I, I just I don't think I think it's scary and unhelpful and it's like we don't learn uh, I feel like every four years it's like you know last last time it was everyone's like how did this happen and it's like well this is it because we're pushing these people the swing voters you've got to bring them round and you know there's seven billion people in the world everybody wants to live their life a certain way and we've got to we have to compromise a little bit. That's my opinion. It's a bit centrist dad, I suppose. But you know. <laughs> um, well, you've mentioned a few interviews you're doing recently. So this is for a series of podcasts, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. What's the series called? It's-, it's called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Uh, the, the idea was like, uh, there were so many documentaries I wanted to make. I've been doing them for years, like researching and researching. It's so hard to get a commission. And then since COVID came in, it was like, well, you know, I'm not going to be able to get a series commissioned now. Uh, but it meant that I just had all these people that were just interesting to me. So they were on the edges of some kind of belief. For example, I wanted to do a series about defectors from cults, right? Which is always interesting. People like that. And I love, I'm fascinated by that stuff. Never got to make it, but I had all the contacts. So it was like, uh, I had a woman called Rehana, who is an ex-Muslim, uh, who her family have, have sort of stalked her from Bangladesh to the UK and are trying to kill her um because of the blasphemy law and that kind of thing so she has to go around with like you know bodyguards and things has to keep moving homes and all of that kind of stuff um i also was in touch with the son of the the founder of the westboro baptist church um which was gramps phelps uh but the son is nate phelps so i thought okay this could why not i've got these people let's let's get these interviews done because i can't wait forever to make a documentary so it was them and then there was an ex-hasidic jew who um, felt like the community committed systemic rape, um, which, you know, and again, after making all of these, they're controversial. And I've had people from the Muslim religion, people from the Jewish, Hasidic Jewish religion, um, getting in touch and being a bit pissed off. And I've tried to sort of, 
you know understand them and i get some of their points as well you know people don't want a dirty laundry or dirty laundry airing in public and they want to make it clearer that it's not everyone uh it's just the extremes of their sects i would call them um but then it was like i don't want to do a cult person every week so you get these funny individuals like there's the guy called the coffin confessor who's an australian fella who goes to funerals if you're dying or something you pay him to go to your funeral and reveal secrets so you can tell him like uh you know so and so was sleeping with my wife and i knew it all along so he'll go and stand up nobody knows he's coming and he'll be like right stop it everyone right so his brother was shagging his wife did you know that and he'll list out a whole bunch of things he also goes and cleans up their houses um, in case they've got, like he said, there was an 88-year-old man who asked him, can you just go and clean out my house, get rid of everything? There was a sex dungeon in the house. So so characters, and then there's also like, you know, thought leaders as well. Just to mix it up, I want to mix it up a bit. So we've got like uh, Daniel Finkelstein, the uh, Times columnist, and uh, Helen Lewis, the feminist uh, writer, um, and it's a few people like that, and, you know, it's a funny thing because I've called it on the edge and then you've got these thought leaders who are very much centrist, very central. So it's just a bit of everything, really, just interesting people, you know. How do you cope with the the backlash when it's there if you've got a particular one that goes out and Twitter erupts in some way or just a small group of people? Mm. Um, do, you, do you cope with that well? Um, I didn't used to. And with with the years, you just sort of, it's just noise now. A lot of it is anti-Semitic stuff on YouTube, under a YouTube video. Um, n- not Directed at you? Yeah, because my, well, my last name's Gold. So that's just enough for people. And maybe I look Jewish. I mean, Louis Threw gets anti-Semitic abuse and he's not Jewish, which is funny. He d- he's just seen to somehow represent some sort of Jewish establishment and maybe looks Jewish. I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, a lot of that stuff, they'll be like, oh, well, he would think this Andrew Gold, and then brackets Berg at the end, or Stein. I, ironically, you know, my we were Goldstein, and my dad changed it uh, before I was born because he got so much anti-Semitic abuse back in the day in England. You know, it was worse decades. It, people say it's worse now, but different kinds. It was worse from the right back then, I suppose. So he changed it to gold. So there's a lot of that stuff. That doesn't hurt at all, actually. Because uh, you just imagine, for me anyway, I can't speak for everyone, but you just imagine people in tinfoil hats, sat at home, just maniacs, just someone you would never give that person uh, the time of day if they you just bumped into them on the street or something and suddenly you're taking their opinion or their racist comments seriously, like, get out of here, I don't care. It's much more hurtful if that stuff is more subtle and it comes from people on the left or the centre because those are friends of yours, those are people you're like, oh... I didn't know they had that view that I'm part of some sort of, you know, uh, media person taking over the world. I wish that were true. It would have been a lot easier to get the documentaries and stuff off the ground. Um, as for, you know, I think a journalist and a documentary maker in particular, what you really want is you want like attention uh, to your work and you want people to tell you how good your work is and to cr- critique your work. You know, it would be amazing to have Mark Commode talking about your work. Uh, and I kept pushing him. I bumped into him at the BBC, actually. He, he has no idea who I am. But I saw him and I accidentally went, oh, it's Mark Commode. And I forgot he doesn't know me. And he looked up and he looked annoyed. And I went, oh, I forgot you're not supposed to do that in the offices and everything. You're supposed to pretend that you're not starstruck or whatever. But he, his favorite film ever was The Exorcist. So I was really pushing him to watch this, but I never got anything back. But you want that. And there's been on the YouTube version of The Exorcism film, 
there have been, I don't know, but thousands of comments. And I, I do check in. Anybody who says they don't is lying to you. I suppose if you've got 50 of them, you don't. But if you've got one or two like that, you, you do check in. And I don't think a single one has ever comment, like critiqued the documentary style. I don't think a single one has ever said, oh, what great presenting by this presenter. That's what you want, you know? Every single one is like, that exorcist was a sleaze. Or why don't you believe in exorcism, you stupid person? You know, so so that's what you want. Um, if somebody said your documentary making is bad, that would be difficult for me to take. That would be upsetting, yeah. I mean, in a way, I suppose you want them engaging with the content rather than talking about how well-made things are, because if they're talking yeah. about that, then they're, they're not really watching the, the thing. Yeah, like a but proper I referee. About, I take what you say about um, it hurts more when it's people you agree with that... And that's what I sometimes find difficult, especially on Twitter, to a certain scale. I mean, you know, you can, I can happily ignore the people who are entirely on a different side of the political spectrum with me. Fine, obviously you're going to disagree. Yeah. But when the attack comes from somebody, it's like, oh, I, but I, I, if we were in a room, we would be agreeing on everything right now. And it's even worse when you think, oh, and they've got a point, I slipped up there. That happened. Oh, yeah, that's embarrassing. Um, yeah. But you know you can't uh, you can't avoid making mistakes your whole life, and I think Twitter's got a real problem with being a magnifier that that demonises, as it were, people for that. Yeah, I think that can be quite scary uh, on both the left and right extremes. Of course, like they they seem to they, there was that what's that biblical line that is like he, yeah he who cast the first stone don't like any religion, but that's that's is that the one I want? Is that the one I'm looking for? The one that means that, like, Don't yeah, because you, you've got, yeah, <laughs> people in glass houses works as well, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, this, this, I, I, I would never want to go out of my way to criticize someone because I, I do so much wrong all the time. My views are constantly found to be wrong. I will say things without any backup, without any knowledge on a podcast like this. There's probably about five things I've got wrong. Probably that Israel thing about the Hasidic Jews. I don't know. Because we make mistakes, and isn't that beautiful about humankind? Isn't that great that we make mistakes, that we're not robots? But we're so quick to attack everyone, aren't we? I think that's a really good place to probably leave the the podcast with a bit of wisdom at the end. <laughs> leave it there, Andrew. Thank you very much for speaking to us today, and thank um, you. All the best, well, all the best getting the next documentary distributed, and um, with whatever whatever else you're doing next. Thank you very much. It's been a been a pleasure. My, my wisdom was like Carl Pilkinson's kind of wisdom at the end. <laughs> Thank you so much to Andrew for joining us. Do check out Exorcism, The Battle for Young Minds, which is still on iPlayer. And don't forget to hit subscribe on the Ham and Hyde podcast. We'll be back again next week.